so obscure in these times and falsehood so established that unless we love the truth, we cannot know it. Listen to that one more time. Such a significant statement. Truth is so obscure in these times and falsehood so established that unless we love the truth, we cannot know it. Now that's quite a statement to begin a program called Faith Is, but it's really important to recognize that, and we'll get back to that idea of truth and falsehood throughout the program, and we'll come back to that statement at the end of the program, but I wanted to put that out there right at the beginning because I am deeply concerned that we live in a time when we are abandoning truth and wanting to believe and then choosing to believe and then believing that which is false. And that is a serious, serious problem. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and this is Faith Is, the program where we challenge each other and help each other grow in our understanding of God and in our faith, because we understand that we need to have faith, absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And I want you to ask yourself these days, do you have that kind of faith? Do you have absolute confidence that God is trustworthy? And if he is, trust him. And if you're not sure that he is, I encourage you to investigate and find out that he really is trustworthy. And we can have faith. We can have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Well, This is Faith Is, a program brought to you by your friends and and my friends at Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida, where I'm the pastor. We have a great church, church just like many other churches around the country. We don't consider ourselves particularly special, but we do work very hard to remain faithful. Faithful to what the Bible says, faithful to God, and we stretch to God's high calling so we can have absolute confidence in his trustworthiness. Well, we're entering and have entered, I guess I should say, we're entering the second week. We've entered Advent, and last week we talked about the first week of Advent and its emphasis. We talked about how Advent is all about the coming of Jesus. We talked about the second Advent briefly, that that that's important to us, and that should be our focus, the expectation of his second coming, even as we celebrate and get ready to celebrate the birth of Jesus. And so each week has an an emphasis that helps us. Week one is on prophecy. We talked about how the prophets do two things. They correct the people and tell them to get back to God, and they also predicted the coming of Messiah. We these days tend to be more fascinated by predictions than by corrections. You know, I think we'd be a lot better off if we, if we paid more attention to corrections and didn't worry so much about predictions, because if we believe in the absolute trustworthiness of God, then we don't have to worry about the future. We just need to be faithful, because he promises to take care of his faithful people. And those promises give us hope. And that was the second part of what we talked about relative to Advent 1, the prophecy and the hope. And the prophecy was helpful to us and remains helpful to us because it points to Jesus and gives us confidence that he really is the one God sent as the Messiah. So now here we are with week two of Advent with another emphasis. And this week, the way we celebrate it at our church is to think about Bethlehem, the place where Jesus was born, and the 
association with Bethlehem is often with peace. Oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie, the carol goes. And so we think about Bethlehem and we think about peace. Well, I think about other things relative to Bethlehem. Not only is it, of course, the birthplace of Jesus, but several years ago, I had the privilege of visiting the Holy Land. We still can call it the Holy Land, you know. We sometimes just call it about visiting Israel now. But we went, we, a bunch of us on a tour, I went and uh, followed the path that the tour had laid out, a man who I had great confidence in and who, who really helped us have a great experience. When we started out pursuing the trip, we weren't sure we'd be able to visit Bethlehem. But when we got to Israel, I found out, yes, we were going to be able to visit Bethlehem. And, and I thought that's pretty cool because uh, it's not always easy to visit some places in Israel, partly because of the unrest that goes on there, partly because of the political discord and division that goes on. And Bethlehem is in what's called the West Bank. But sure enough, it worked out and and we went. I remember a number of things. And at this time of year, I, I tend to remember and think about that all over again. And we went on a bus. That's how we got around. And we had to go through a very rigorous military checkpoint before we could go on into visit Bethlehem. And I remember the soldiers were, were there at the checkpoint, much like what you've seen on television from that part of the country or part of the world. And even two of them got on the bus and walked down the aisle, fully armed, ready, combat ready, really. And they just looked us over to make sure we were as innocent as we were. And of course we were. And then the bus was allowed to go on through. Well, that was a little bit unsettling to think about peaceful Bethlehem, but you had to go through all of that. But that was fine. We went on, managed to make it into Bethlehem. We stopped at the foot of the hill, as it turned out. I didn't realize that at the time, but there's so many things to take in, you just don't realize them. We got off the bus, and we were greeted by a Palestinian Authority police officer. I thought that was a little unusual because, you know, we heard and have heard a lot of news from that part of the world about the Palestinian Authority. And and he was very friendly and cordial. In fact, everybody we met there was very friendly and cordial. They seemed happy that we were there. We had been told that, that all sides of the political divide welcomed tourists, so that was not a real surprise, but it was real, really quite interesting to see him as friendly as he was. I guess I just didn't know what to expect. Uh, really, the only difficulty we encountered in Bethlehem at all was the street vendors who always wanted to sell us something for a dollar. They wanted to sell us what they had for an American dollar. And for the most part, we didn't buy anything from them, but they were eager, and a lot of times they were kids. Well, we walked on up the hill, and to my amazement, we walked into Manger Square. Now, I knew we were visiting Bethlehem, and I knew where we were going, but I'll tell you, it was really unusual to walk in there and to realize that I was in Manger Square, the place that I had seen on television so many times, because I've watched the television coverage of the birth, the celebration of the birth of Jesus, many times over the years, and, and I walked into that square, and it was it was all too familiar. And so I had been there. Well, I hadn't. But it was also interesting that it was not quite as big as I thought it was, because you can't really get a sense of the size of things from, from a television picture. We walked into Manger Square, and we walked on through the square into the Church of the Nativity. And again, a really quite eerie feeling, because I had seen pictures from inside the Church of the Nativity on one news report or another, and, and it was like, well, I've been here, and here I am again, but I had not been. Uh, but it was really probably part of the overwhelming sense of visiting a place like Bethlehem with such significance from the birth of Jesus to all the things that are going on in today's world. 
Well, the actual site that has historically or traditionally, I should say, been commemorated as the birthplace of Jesus was downstairs. And so we had to walk through the church to a side door up front and then down the stairs to a, to a cave-like room underneath the church. And there was the site, the traditional site of the birth of Jesus. Now, almost certainly it is not the actual site where Jesus was born. But it was still quite amazing because I'd seen pictures of that too. And, and it was just quite stunning to stand there and look around and take in a small area, but to see all of the things that, that we remember from the Christmas story. So that was, that was quite, quite stunning. We, we left that place. We went to a, to a shop where we were able to buy some remembrances of Bethlehem, very nice handmade olive wood items. I brought several of them home. We also visited Shepherd's Fields, where we saw the place where tradition says the shepherds saw the angels. And maybe we'll get back to talk a little bit more about that on another program. But it was quite interesting to see all of Bethlehem and, and to make that connection. But today I want to talk about something else, that several other things. And, and one of the things we want to talk about is the relative to the birth of Jesus. And that's the, the reality and the challenge for some people of the virgin birth. And people say, well, that's impossible. Well, nothing is impossible with God. We understand that. And we should remind ourselves of that. Whenever you're tempted to lose hope, remind yourself that nothing is impossible with God. What God is looking for is faithful people. And we're going to be faithful people, aren't we? Well, yes, we are. Nothing's impossible with God. He is with us and he will be with us. But people get hung up sometimes on this idea of the virgin birth. And and I was thinking about that, and, and I actually happened to read the, the script of a play that a church is doing, uh, a church in England, actually. It's remarkable what you come across sometimes when you're looking for things. And in that play, they mention the challenge of believing in the virgin birth. And one of the, the people in the play, it's a, it's a small presentation, not elaborate at all, but very thoughtful and very well done. One of the, one of the characters in that says it shouldn't be such a surprise, this idea of a virgin birth. And I thought, well, that was interesting. And then this character, who happened to be a woman in the play, mentioned three other characters. Well, more than three. I said three. That's, that's wrong. I mentioned um, how many more? Well, actually, five other characters in the Bible where unusual things happened related to, to birth. And I thought, wow, I never really put that together. But I've long believed that the Bible stories really help us understand what God is trying to communicate to us. And the better we understand the Bible stories, the better we can put the pieces of the puzzle, that is the story of God and, the, and his people as told by the Bible, the better we can put it together. And a lot of times we learn this fragment here and that fragment there, and we don't think about some of the things that they have in common. And this was one of the things that from this play, which was, was really quite insightful, it linked these characters together in a way that I'd never thought about. So maybe this will help you as you think about the virgin birth and, and its believability. So let's just kind of walk through a few of those just to give you the idea. Well, the character suggested that we shouldn't be so surprised by the virgin birth because down through the story of the Bible, there have been a number of remarkable birth stories. And it's true. I remembered that when, when the character mentioned that. 
And so I went back and I read those stories. I looked at them again and, and I thought, sure enough, isn't it remarkable? And I began to connect just the few that the character mentioned in the play and why they mentioned them this way, I don't know. But again, it was a thoughtful, very thoughtful script. And it started out with Sarah and her experience of a remarkable birth story. Now, to think about Sarah takes us way back to the beginning of what we now think of as the people of God. Because Abraham, Abraham was Sarah's husband. Abraham was the man that God said, I want to enter into a covenant relationship with you. And so they participated in a covenant-making ceremony. You can go back to Genesis chapter 15 if you'd like to read that story about the covenant-making ceremony. It's really quite quite interesting, quite fascinating. I won't get into a lot of that right now, but one of the key things out of that covenant discussion was that God came and made promises to Abraham, and Abraham essentially said, well, you can promise me all these things, but I don't have an heir. I don't have a son that's going to inherit what you've blessed me with. And God had blessed Abraham abundantly. He was a very well-off man. Well, God, in the course of that conversation, said to Abraham, don't worry, you're going to have a son, your own son. Your inheritance won't go to your servant or to someone else. It'll go to a son, your flesh and blood son. Well, Abraham believed God and they entered into covenant. And it was some time later that Abraham was hanging out, we would say, and uh, three guys showed up to visit. Well, it turns out they were very special visitors, and Abraham welcomed them like he should have in the custom of the day. And they said to Abraham, a year from now, you're going to have a son. Well, Abraham was pretty old by this time, well past the age when men and women would have children, and Sarah, too, was older than the normal age for having children. And Sarah happened to overhear the statement made to Abraham, and she laughed. And she didn't really apparently believe it. But sure enough, sure enough, even though all these years had passed and they had had no children, Abraham and Sarah. And yes, there's a lot of other messy details in this story that I'm leaving out because I just want to connect the dots on this business of how God helps people have children. So Abraham and Sarah, sure enough, a year later, they have a son. Now, she had been childless all these years, but now God intervened and took what had been no children and gave them a son, the son of promise we think of, Bible talks about, that Abraham and Sarah had that would become the heir of his household and would continue the people of God. So Abraham and Sarah have a son. His name was Isaac. Isaac grew up, a lot of things happened, but Isaac needed a wife. So sure enough, they set out working on the process of getting Isaac a wife. And um, they didn't want to have just any wife for him. They were concerned that he have the wife that would come from the right, well, the right people. You know, I think people think that way sometimes these days, but, but they thought that way. And and so they, they needed to find a wife for Isaac, and, and Abraham sent his servant out to a specific area to find a wife. And in a most remarkable way, and you can read this in Genesis chapter 24, 
can read the story. In a most remarkable way, God points out to this servant the girl that is to become Isaac's wife. And she behaves in such a way that that really impressed the servant, really got his attention, and answered his prayer that he had prayed that God would would reveal to him who the wife was to be. I know a lot of us today would think, wow, I don't know if I want my father's employee to go looking for my wife. Well, things were different in those days. We understand that. But the important thing here is not just the cultural differences. We understand that. But notice how much God cared about finding the right person for Isaac to marry. And so Isaac marries a young lady from his people, his historic people, because the servant had traveled a long way to find those people. He married a wife named Rebecca. And the servant brought her home, explained the whole story, and, and Isaac seemed to be thrilled that he had a wife now. It's really quite remarkable on so many levels. Well, Isaac loved Rebecca, but once again, she did not have children. In the same way that his father's wife did not have any children, Rebecca did not have any children. For years this went on, no children. And there's a lot to the story here of Isaac and his household and all of that. But again, we're focusing on miraculous births, so we're not going to talk about all those details. The details are interesting. But here we have a miraculous birth with Abraham and Sarah, and now here Isaac and Rebekah have no children until God answers her prayer, and she conceived and had twins. So Rebekah gave birth to Jacob and Esau. Well, the story of God's people unfolds through Jacob. Esau was separate, and that's part of the story, but we're not going to focus on that. We're going to focus on Sarah had Isaac. Rebekah gave birth to Jacob. And that was the line of Abraham's tribe, which became the people of God, and ultimately later, the result of more births, became the 12 tribes of Israel. So Rebekah gives birth to Jacob and Esau. Jacob becomes the one to continue the line, the family line, although Esau was the eldest by a little bit because he was born first. They were twins. He was born first, so he, he would have been the one, but he, in another story that's quite interesting, sold his birthright, and so now Jacob became the one who was blessed by his father and who became the one to carry out the continuation of the household. So it goes from Abraham and Sarah to Isaac and Rebekah to Jacob and Esau, but focusing on Jacob. You can read the story here. And and Jacob gets the blessing of his father, but he also needs a wife. So he travels himself this time, travels to his historic people in search of a wife. And there he meets a young lady named Rachel. Well, he has to work for the privilege of marrying her. That's what her father said. And so there's quite a number of years that unfold while he's working. And there's a little deception and trickery goes on. And and Jacob ends up with two wives instead of one. Because the father of Rachel said, you can't have Rachel until we marry the oldest daughter off. And so if you want one, you have to take the other. And so Jacob ended, ended up with two wives, both Rachel and Leah. Now, the important part for the story of the people of God continues on through Rachel and the children she had.
But again, when Jacob married these two girls, Rachel didn't have children. She couldn't have children for whatever reason. And and that was a great horror to her. Of course, it was to all women of that day that when they couldn't have children, it was a, it was not a good thing. They, they suffered mightily as a social stigma, all of those kinds of things. But in the providence of time and by the blessing of God, Rachel did have children, and the line continued from there. So those three-in-a-row situations, Abraham and Sarah to Isaac and Rebekah to Jacob and Rachel, all had remarkable birth stories of the children involved. So when we think about God and a remarkable birth, we shouldn't be quite as surprised as we typically are because God was involved and helped in all those situations, and they were unusual birth stories. Well, there's another one that takes place in the early chapters of 1 Samuel. You can read that story as well. I was told when I was a kid and well, when I was a little older than a kid that, that the story of Samuel was one of my favorite Bible stories. I don't remember that, but I do remember learning the Bible story. And it really centers around his mother, Hannah. And Hannah, again, was a much-loved wife, but she did not have any children. And as you probably are aware, in those days, that was a terrible stigma for you to be married, for you to be the woman and not have any children. It was, a, it was a very, very hard thing to bear. And so Hannah went up to the temple, and she was there in the temple in Jerusalem and pouring her heart out to God. I mean, praying and, and telling God of her distress. Um, and by the way, men, women, seems to me that God is okay with us pouring out our distress to him. Sometimes we're reluctant to do that. I know I have been thinking, well, I need to just you know, pull it all together and, and not tell God about how upset I am about something. Well, there are a lot of characters in the Bible that didn't hesitate, and Hannah was one of them. She actually poured out her heart to God in a, in a most uh, heartfelt, heartbreaking manner. In fact, she was so uh, distraught and, and, and so evocative in her prayers to God over her situation that the priest there, Eli, the priest thought she was drunk and rebuked her and said, don't come into the temple of God. Don't come into the house of God drunk. What do you think you're doing? And she quickly remonstrates and says to him, no, 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 I'm not drunk. I'm heartbroken. I'm heart sick. I'm pouring out my heart to God because I want to have a baby. And finally, the priest understood and she went on her way with the promise from God that she would have a baby. Well, she did not too long after that. The following year had, had a baby. And God was faithful. That baby's name was Samuel. She had promised God that she would give the baby back to God for his service. Really, really remarkable statement to think that a mother so desperately wanted a baby that she would even be willing to give birth and begin raising that child, but give it to God from that point on. Really a remarkable sacrifice. But she did. She had the baby. She raised the baby until it was weaned and could be away from home. And then as a fairly young boy, Samuel was taken back to the temple 
where he began temple service under Eli's supervision, and this boy became the great prophet of Israel, Samuel. Remarkable story. Remarkable. You know, I suppose there's a lot of lessons we could draw from this about, about the challenge of childlessness. And I don't know, maybe you have some challenges in your life. Maybe that's one of them. But again, over and over, God heard the cries of his people. I don't know whether he will answer you by saying, yes, I will provide what you're asking for. But he never seems at all upset that we tell him about our troubles. So open your heart to God and tell him. Be honest with him. Listen to his response. And remember that God is trustworthy and you can trust him even in the midst of all of that. And some people go through real difficulties during this season leading up to Christmas because they look around and they see all the good things that other people seem to have and they look at what they are missing in their life. And it makes it difficult. So talk to God about those difficulties if that's you. Well, let's go on. We're talking about the connections of interesting birth stories from the Bible in relationship to the virgin birth when Jesus was born to Mary, born by the Holy Spirit to Mary. And so she experienced a virgin birth. Well, there's another woman in that story that's really connected to Mary. Her name is Elizabeth. Her husband was a priest, and he had gone up, as the story is told in the early pages of the Gospel of um, Oh, no, excuse me, which gospel was it? Was it Luke? I'll turn the pages, turn the pages, turn the pages. I'll find it here in a minute. I think it was Luke. Yeah, Luke chapter 1. That's where we're going to go for that story. So if you haven't read that, that's really quite fascinating. Luke chapter 1. It's the story of the birth of John the Baptist. Well, John the Baptist's father, as it turned out, was... uh, was a priest, and he was serving in the temple. He, it was his duty. His name was Zechariah. He b- belonged to a priestly order, so it wasn't unusual for him to be at the temple. It was his turn to enter the holy place in the temple where they offer incense. And while he was in there, an angel visited him and said, you're going to have a baby, you and your wife, Elizabeth. Well, that was quite shocking to him because, as he said to the angel, I'm pretty old, and and my wife, she's pretty old too. How are we going to have a baby? And the the angel said, listen, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. Wow, there's a shock for you. Talk to an angel that stands in the presence of God. Yes, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, the angel said. And yes, you will have a baby. But because of your doubt, because you doubted that, you won't be able to speak until the baby's born. Wow. Wow. That's quite a statement. He couldn't even tell people what was going on. So the angel left, and he went out and couldn't speak, but it was clear to everybody that something remarkable had happened. He goes on home at the end of his temple service, and sure enough, about a year later, they have a baby, John the Baptist. We call him John the Baptist. They named him John. Sometimes we call him John the Baptizer because he had a specific role in the story of Jesus. But here again... A remarkable birth, unexpected, born to a couple who were well past the age where they normally would have had children. And this baby, John, played a pivotal role. And you can read the details. It's really quite remarkable. Luke chapter 1. 
played a remarkable role in his birth and then in his vocation after he was born, what he did in the story of Jesus. And of course, Mary also visited Elizabeth. So that was quite remarkable as well. And and that, that story is also there in the early pages of Luke. So take a look and read that. But God is up to miraculous things, isn't he? Isn't it remarkable that God can do some of these things? And, and isn't it remarkable that that all down through the story of the Bible and the story of God's people, these, these several events, children were born in seemingly impossible situations because God intervened and made the difference. So why would we be surprised when an angel comes to Mary and says, you're going to have a baby, the Holy Spirit's going to enable you to have a baby, and he's going to be Emmanuel, God with us. He's going to be the Savior of the world. Quite a, quite a remarkable thing. But that's just one way we can kind of connect things that happen in the Bible and, and how the Bible stories that, that we learn kind of make sense when we look at them linked like this. So it wasn't that unusual. It wasn't unprecedented that God would intervene and a woman would have a baby. Maybe God will intervene in your life during this Advent season. I don't know. But in all of these situations, God clearly listened to the cries of his people. And I don't know what your cry is today, but be honest with God and trust him as you're honest. Develop that absolute confidence in his trustworthiness. And whether or not he gives you your request doesn't change his trustworthiness. But in the honesty before God, I believe you will find rest for your soul. And you just might find some of that Bethlehem peace that we tend to talk about. Because God wants to give us peace of heart in the midst of our circumstances. And he wants to transcend those circumstances to make us whole. Well, we got more to talk about, but we really need to take a break. So we're going to interrupt ourselves right now. And we'll be back in just a minute. Stay with us. While many things we hear are lies, we know one thing is true. Viruses exist and people get sick. Look, there's no guaranteed way to keep from getting sick, but there is a way to reduce your chances. Cofix RX, the original povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray that you hear Dr. McCullough talking about, provides an additional invisible layer of protection from colds, flu, coronaviruses, and more. Click the banner ad on americaoutloud.com and use promo code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Stay protected with Cofix RX. We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger, but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, we heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer. This stationary unit quietly protects you and is perfect for smaller spaces. With over a quarter million units sold in Japan, it's now available in the United States. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to see the UX4 in action and receive a 15% discount on either Falker with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. The spirit of American liberty and justice is woven into the soul of America Out Loud. We are the voice of a nation, the American nation that is. This is Malcolm Out Loud. I invite you back to AmericaOutloud.com 
where the fight for liberty and justice continues. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free, love it, or your money back, guaranteed. HealthyCell.com, code out loud. Welcome back. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and you're listening to Faith Is, where we challenge each other and we stretch each other toward absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. So glad you joined us today. I'm the pastor at Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. A wonderful group of people. I wish you could meet all of them. We are just regular folks making our way in the world like you, trying to be faithful to God and to what the Bible says. And we are determined to have that kind of confidence in God that keeps us on the straight and narrow road. We've been talking about Advent and and this Advent season, and we walked our way through a number of Bible stories about what's going on and how God intervened miraculously to give birth to children. And one of those miraculous births was, of course, the birth of Jesus, But a parallel miraculous birth was the birth of John, who we call John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. You'll sometimes hear him called. Well, John grew up and was intended to be and became an announcer of the arrival of Jesus. So he became the one who went before Jesus to prepare the way to get people ready for the arrival of Jesus. And he was a special, special boy from the moment of of birth, even before he was born, he was special. You read the scriptures, you'll discover that. And the scripture reading that we want to read from the gospel, and we will read in our church this weekend, is from Matthew chapter 3. And so I want to read that passage to you. It's, um, well, it's, it's important in this season of Advent because Advent's all about preparation, anticipation. It's all about changing our lives to get ready for the arrival of Jesus. And that's absolutely significant. We are anticipating not just the revisiting of his birth. He already was born. We're celebrating that birthday, but we're also getting ready for his coming again. And so John's message to those people and to us is is really right on point. So let's read from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3. I'm going to read from the New Revised Standard Version, the updated edition. And I'm going to start with verse 1 of chapter 3 and read through verse 12. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? 
Therefore, bear fruit worthy of repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I, and I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Well, John, tell us what you really think, huh? Well, he was a pretty straightforward prophet. And remember, he was fulfilling the role of getting people ready for the coming of Jesus because they needed to be ready when he came. And so he talked to them very straight, and he talked about how they needed to repent or change their lives. And he made quite an impact. He surely did. Well, I've been thinking... If John were to come to our day and our time, is there something he might talk to us about? Is there something specific he might talk to us about in terms of repentance or change? I've also been thinking, because I like to do this from time to time, that maybe I should come up with a list this week of 10 things I think. Well, I kind of put this idea together because it's really been annoying me big time. And the 10 things list and the message that maybe John would give if he were here. And I want to talk to us very specifically, and I want to refer to several passages in the Bible about this idea of truth, falsehood, and lying. I think if John were here today, he would say to our world, you've got to stop lying to yourselves and to each other. You've got to start trying to make something that is false true. You've got to return to that which is true and right and holy. And it's time for you to change and repent and get things right. I think he would talk very straight to us. And so I want us to take a little journey through a number of Bible passages that remind us about the importance of, of truthfulness and the horrors of lying. We see lying everywhere, and it's been taken for granted in our day, and it should not be. So let's take a look at some of those. So I want to start with Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. Now, you may remember that this is one of the Ten Commandments. And it says very plainly God's message to his people, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. We commonly say, don't lie. Well, there's a little bit more to it there than that. But essentially, it is saying, don't mislead your neighbor. Don't deceive your neighbor. Tell the truth. It's one of the top ten. How many people want to see the Ten Commandments posted someplace? Well, if you want to see them posted someplace where they aren't, then maybe you should stop and think about maybe, just maybe, and more than maybe. I guess if we're intent on having them posted, we should be intent on following them and make sure we focus on that which is true and right and not give in to falsehood. Let's take a quick trip to Proverbs 16, starting with verse 16. And again, I'm using the New Revised Standard Version Updated Edition. Hear what the proverb writer tells us. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that hurry 
to run to evil, a lying witness who testifies falsely, and one who sows discord in a family. Wow, tell us what you really think. It's an abomination to God when we lie, when we bear false witness, a lying witness who testifies falsely, it says. It's an abomination to God. Notice that that lying is mixed in with someone who sheds innocent blood, who murders someone. God feels very strongly, tell the truth. And he means for you and for me, for all of us, to tell the truth and not tolerate lying. Let's take another look. Proverbs is full of this kind of things. Proverbs 12, verse 20. Deceit is in the mind of those who plan evil, but those who counsel peace have joy. Well, we like to think about peace at this time of the year and joy, but notice that it said deceit is in the mind of those who plan evil. The Bible makes no, no excuses, no exceptions in its linking of deceit and lying to evil. You'll see that in a number of these verses that I'm going to highlight, and that's one of them, Proverbs 12, verse 20. Let's continue our journey to Proverbs and turn the page, a couple of pages, to Proverbs chapter 14, verse 25. And, and I chose these just because they stood out to me, that you can find a lot more than this in the Bible about lying. But here in Proverbs 14, 25, a truthful witness saves lives, but one who utters lies is a betrayer. Well, that's for sure. Somebody lies, you feel betrayed. But notice that it says a truthful witness saves lives. Wow, that's what we want to be. We want to be people that give life, that save life. We don't want to be betrayers. But here it says one who utters lies is a betrayer. That's a very serious, very serious statement that the Bible makes. Well, let's continue. Proverbs 19. Proverbs 19, verse 5. A false witness will not go unpunished, and a liar will not escape. Now, that's a serious statement from God. If you want to talk about a season to hear the word of the Lord and to change, if you are involved in falsehood of any kind, deceit of any kind, if you lie to people, stop now. Because here it says, a false witness will not go unpunished and a liar will not escape. The good news is Jesus came to forgive you and to bear the penalty for that. And he will take that punishment on himself if you will turn from your sin and follow him. And make no mistake about it, falsehood, lying, deception is sin in any context for any reason. Do not lie to your neighbors. Do not bear false witness. You need to be a life giver focused on the truth. Well, let's go ahead to Acts chapter 5. Now, this is a Bible, another one of those Bible stories that, that I remember learning, and, and you may have learned it too. And it's really stunning. It's, it's an incident that took place in the early church. And they were sharing their property, their wealth, I guess you would say, whether they had a lot or a little. And in this case, Ananias and Sapphira had quite a bit because they sold a piece of property and then they presented the proceeds of that sale to God and to the Apostle Peter. Well, here's what Peter says when Ananias brought part of the proceeds and represented it as all of the proceeds. Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? 
and after it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? How is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You did not lie to us, but to God. Now when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard of it. The young men came and wrapped up his body, then carried him out and buried him. Well, a little while later, his wife came in, didn't know what had happened to Ananias, her husband. Same thing happened to her. She misrepresented, lied to God, and she died. God takes lying very seriously. In our world, we need to take it just as seriously. And I think if John the Baptist were here to give us a message of repent, in other words, change your ways, and follow God, he would say, you guys have got to stop the lying and the deception and the falsehood. Well, you want another one? Let's continue. John, I said I had 10 because this really, really gets to me. John chapter 8, verse 44. Well, now here, these are the words of Jesus. And I'm just going to interrupt a larger statement that he made just to focus on this part of that. So listen to this from John chapter 8, verse 44. You are from your father, the devil, and you choose to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks according to his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now that's the words of Jesus. John chapter 8, verse 44, where he's describing Satan as the father of lies and it, and it says that when you lie, you speak according to your nature. Friends, we must not fall into that trap of lying. He's, he's equated the devil as a murderer and a liar, and the lying is linked again to murder. What in the world is going on here? How can this be? Well, let's keep going. If you need more to think about, Maybe we don't. Maybe that's enough. If it is, make your confession before God. Let's go to Ephesians 4, verse 25. So then, putting away all falsehood, let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. There's the admonition from the writer of Ephesians. We should speak the truth to each other, for we are members of one another. It affects all of us when we lie. And we must not lie. Now, this was given to a church, so it's particularly important in church. It's important everywhere. But if your church is going through difficulties and not telling the truth to each other, wow, you better fix that. Because here, the the writer to the church in Ephesus says, speak the truth. Put away falsehood. It's going to affect all of us, he says. Putting away falsehood, let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. Do you get the idea that in God's way of understanding things, there are no little white lies? That he really does mean the truth? Now, let me insert here just so you understand. It's not a lie to not say everything you think. Some people, I don't quite understand this. We all make this mistake sometimes. I get that. But everything they think of comes out their mouth, and they need to they need to have a filter. So don't think that everything you think has to come out, or you're or you're being a liar. No, sometimes you're just being kind and and sensible. 
A lie is deliberate deception. Well, let's go a couple more. Then I think we probably have had enough. But you know, we haven't had enough, really, until we put off all the lying, until we put it aside and we don't have anything more to do with it. So let's go to the, to the book of Revelation, the next to the last chapter. Revelation 21, verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, the murderers, the fornicators, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Notice that it said, all liars. God is serious about this. Again, he links this idea of liars with horrible behaviors, like murder, like sexual immorality, like sorcery, like idolatry. And he links lying in with all of that. It's a serious business to God. And he talks about serious judgment that will result. Down a few verses in that same chapter in verse 27. Talks about the, the great city that God is preparing for people. But he says, nothing unclean will enter it, meaning that city, nor anyone who practices abomination or falsehood but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So once again, God says, I can't have falsehood in my heavenly kingdom. You can't come in. That's why lying matters so much. And there are people today that think lying is just a part of life. And in certain arenas, you're allowed to lie, and everybody expects it, so it's okay. I don't see that in the Bible. We need to tell the truth. Finally, from the last chapter of the book of Revelation, Revelation 22, 15. And again, it talks about the city that God is preparing for all of his faithful people. It talks about the city there, and he says, Outside the city, outside are the dogs and sorcerers and fornicators and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Notice again, the idea of people who are deliberately deceptive, they're linked in with the most horrible things like murder. God really means it when he says, tell the truth. He really means it. And I think that if John the Baptist were coming today, he would have a lot to say about this idea of telling the truth. Because we live in a time when there's so much deception out there. So very much. Well, I guess you get the idea that my 10 things were really one thing focused on let's be truthful people. Let's get back to telling the truth. Let's, let's turn away from falsehood. Lying. Starts with the Ten Commandments, goes all the way through to the very end of the book of Revelation that God is reminding us, tell the truth. Well, we talked about Bethlehem. We talked about preparing for the coming of Jesus, and preparing does have to do with changing our lives and repenting. And I came across this very interesting story that was told by Gigi, one of Billy Graham's granddaughters. And I thought it was really quite fascinating. It gives you a little glimpse into their family life. And, and they were all excited about Christmas and looking forward to it. And the, she says her children had been getting excited and making lists. And, and every time they would bring her a new list, she'd say to them, wait until Christmas. And, and finally, the family was all ready and they got everything prepared and wrapped up and packed. And they were going to take the trip to North Carolina back home to spend family time at Christmas in North Carolina where... Billy Graham lived. So the closer they got, the more the excitement rose. They knew they were going to see their grandparents. And you know, you've been with kids in a car. You know how the excitement gets, gets um, ramped up the closer you get. And they always want to know how much farther. Well, they drove up the winding driveway and they 
were welcomed warmly. They knew the people that were there expecting them. They had all the things that she describes it as homemade apple pie and a cozy fire. And that sure would be exciting and welcome. And they all went in and it built to a crescendo on Christmas Eve. And of course, they had some family rituals. A lot of families do on Christmas Eve, some more, some less. But on Christmas Eve in their family, they would all take turns hanging their stockings in front of the very large fireplace and all getting ready for the coming of Santa, of course. And so her father, Gigi's father, would gather all the children around and, and they made a phone call. This is one of their traditions. They called Santa at the North Pole. And they just wanted to make sure that he got all the, the lists and everything was in order. And they, Santa assured them by phone that everything was in order. And so they wished him a good and speedy trip and got the kids ready for bed. And just as they were getting the kids off to bed, they heard Santa's sleigh bells ringing outside. Well, that was one of their family traditions. They were really donkey bells hung on the chimney and rung by Gigi's younger brother at just the right time. Well, <laughs> I guess you can imagine that the kids couldn't get to sleep very well, and she describes that, and that wasn't easy for them. Of course, the, all that tradition and anticipation didn't make it any easier for them. Well, they did finally get to sleep, and, and we all know what that's like. And Christmas morning did arrive, and the kids woke up, and everyone hurried down to the kitchen. But they all hurried down dressed in their Sunday best. That was their tradition. They dressed up as though they were going to church. They got down to the kitchen, and no one was allowed into the living room. That's why they went to the kitchen until they had all gathered and finished eating. So they all had breakfast first amid all the excitement. They all had to have some breakfast, and... The children tried to be patient, as children always are. She says the grown-ups drank their coffee slowly. Well, probably they did, although who among us drinks coffee fast, really? Well, they had finished up eating, and, and uh, the last drop of coffee was down. And, and about that time, Gigi's father decided they needed to read the Christmas story before they went out and enjoyed the stockings. So they wanted to do it first instead of later. Well, the kids, you can imagine, sighed and tried to be more patient, and he began reading the story. And, and while the kids were attentive listeners, she says she wasn't sure they heard much that morning. Well, I guess we can all imagine that. Well, they thought after the reading of the story that would be it, but then Gigi's sister decided that it was a good idea for all of the people to have their picture taken as they were getting ready and going into the living room. Well, they all lined up dutifully to get their picture taken, but she said, Gigi said, that was the last straw. Her oldest son looked up at his grandmother amidst all of the attempt to be patient, looked up at his grandmother and said in total disgust and exasperation, Bethlehem was never as miserable as this. And truer words from the mouth of a child have never been spoken, have they? Those kids were patient, and, and sometimes that's what Christmas celebration requires, is that kind of patience. Well, we've covered a lot of ground today on the program, and I hope this all helps you not so much with your Christmas preparations as much as your heart preparation, because that's what Advent is about. It's about anticipation and preparation. It's about getting our hearts where they need to be so we'll be ready when Jesus comes. We all want to be ready on Christmas Day for the celebration. But we also want to be ready when Jesus comes for that great celebration. And I began the program with a quote that I want to end with because, again, I think if John the Baptist was giving us his message, his message would be that we need to stop the deception and tell the truth. 
But here's the quote that I started the program with, you may remember. Truth is so obscure in these times and falsehood so established that unless we love the truth, we cannot know it. And it's true, we live in times that are very deceptive, very false, where truth is difficult to find, but we, we need to love the truth so we can know it. Now, I was very encouraged because that quote came from a man named Blaise Pascal, who lived from 1623 to 1662. That was a very long time ago. He was a Frenchman, mathematician, Christian, and he made that observation that many years ago. Think about it. Truth is so obscure in these times and falsehood so established that unless we love the truth, we cannot know it. Well, if he felt that way then, I guess it gives me encouragement that I feel a lot that way now. That God hasn't abandoned us and God is the author of truth. Jesus himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And we can come to God. We can approach the Father when we approach him through Jesus. And we who are the people of God, we who have faith, absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, need to love the truth, stand up for the truth, defend the truth, and live out the truth in our lives so that we can be a light in darkness. The Bible says that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, referring to the light of Jesus coming into the world. And we, the people of God, are now the light of Jesus in the world because we are the visible presence of God in the world today. And I want to encourage you to light up your world with the truth. Be faithful to Him. Walk in His ways and trust Him. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. I'll talk to you next week.